we are live. All right, welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar in our two-part May 2016 series titled Building News Literacy, Critical Media Skills, and Political Awareness Today, which was organized by the News Literacy Project. Um, if you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Uh, I'm Peter Adams, uh, SVP of Education Programs uh, at the News Literacy Project, uh, and I'll be your host today. And I'm talking with Chris Fusco and Tim Novak from the Chicago Sun-Times, both uh, investigative reporters there, about the power of investigative journalism and how young people can also become watchdogs uh, and build their assessment skills when it comes to news, politics, and information. Um, before we dive into the conversation, though, let's go over a couple of quick details. To those of you watching right now, we welcome your comments and questions through either uh, the Twitter hashtags Connected Learning uh, or uh, hashtag 2, numeral 2, next prez with a Z, um, or through the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. And we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Hangout. Um, this webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's EducatorInnovator.org site and is part of a series of programming related to Letters to the Next President 2.0, which engages and connects young people ages 13 to 18 as they research, write, and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in the coming election, hence the hashtag 2, numeral 2, next prez. Uh, this webinar will be available as a resource on letters to letterstopresident.org, uh, uh, where you can find many other resources and opportunities related to the election, writing, and digital literacies. Uh, with that uh, out of the way, let's give everybody a chance to introduce themselves. Chris, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Fusco. I've been at the Sun-Times uh, nearly 16 years. Um, Stories I got, what kind of got me into investigative reporting was uh, covering state government uh, during the Bogoyevich years, former Governor Rob Bogoyevich, who now is in prison. And uh, it kind of led me uh, to work with Tim a little bit, um, doing stories about uh, a key Bogoyevich fundraiser named Tony Resco, who also had a pretty uh, large intersection with the Obama campaign. So that got Tim and I working together, and he's been my uh, mentor and my friend uh, for years. Great. Tim? Uh, my name is Tim. Um, I've been here a little over 20 years. Um, I believe that doing your own stories is a lot better than having someone assign stories to you, so um, I've gravitated to this kind of work because... It allows us a great deal of freedom um, to pursue things we would like to pursue uh, and chase things that we think are interesting and important to chase. Um, and um, probably the biggest thing I've done here, one of the biggest things I've done here is about a dozen years ago, I uh, uncovered a $40 million a year program in which the city was hiring trucks that were doing nothing and uh, the companies were making donations to people and who made the decisions on who to, what trucks to hire and there were mob people running the companies, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that story kind of allowed me complete freedom at that point. Great. So, yeah, a little bit there from both of you about what kind of hooked you on uh, investigative reporting and, and what makes it different. We'll, I think we'll return to that a little bit in a moment. Um, but to help students understand, so we're being joined, as you both know, by, by students uh, across the country who may or may not know uh, much about um, investigative reporting and what it involves. Um, and so I thought we would take a look at some of your recent work to try to highlight something that's, uh, that's called the watchdog role, which is a common term that people uh, use to describe investigative journalism and other, other types of reporting and journalism, uh, but especially investigative work. Um, a recent story you did earlier this month um, about uh, the governor here in Illinois and uh, the House Speaker, uh, Michael Madigan, who are bitter political rivals but have some interesting business connections. Uh, Madigan's law firm has helped businesses that Rauners invested in minimize their taxes 
and yet in the political arena they are they are bitter enemies. Um, you all, you have done a number of stories on the Chicago Housing Authority, uh, which is the city agency that that oversees public housing here in Chicago, um, about uh, landlords that abuse the voucher system that that make a great deal of money. Um, renting out apartments that may or may not be up to code uh, for voucher money, which is basically guaranteed public money to them. Uh, some CHA residents are able to use vouchers to rent uh, apartments in luxury high-rises. You did a story about this and the sort of political connections that led to that. Um, you did a story about uh, uh, another story here um, about um, units that, uh, that are part of the voucher program um, and a building that was developed by politically connected folks, um, a story about wait lists and, and uh, how confusing the waitlisting system with CHA can be. Some residents wait a long time, some residents get uh, units right away, um, and some other pieces about uh, the Chicago Transit Authority uh, and the pension system uh, there uh, and the abuse of pensions, people overlapping pensions people paying up to boost their pension in a way that actually results in more public money being spent uh, as well. Um, and some of your stories you've done in partnership uh, with the BGA, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute, but I wanted to stop there and sort of highlight uh, those stories to, to draw attention to um, the watchdog role because it's such a central part of our conversation here. Um, and basically, um, you know, the press is able to act uh, as a watchdog uh, on uh, the public's interest uh, on stories like these um, in a way that uh, government uh, is not able to, to always police itself. Um, you both spoke a little bit at the opening about how that freedom um, uh, sort of attracted you to, to investigative journalism. Either of you have anything to, to add there in, in terms of how you would define the watchdog role or the, the, the way you play it or why it's so vital? We call Tim the Alpha Watchdog, so I'll let him answer that. Uh, I'll let him answer that first. So, Tim, why why do we need journalists to play this role? Why can't government watchdog itself or companies watchdog themselves? Well, they try to, or at least they fit, they claim to. Um, they hire people like inspectors general, or they have auditors. Um, in a lot of cases, those things don't become public. Uh, for instance, the CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, has an auditor and an inspector general whose reports are not public. So whatever they find, no one knows. So um, you need someone to, you know, the, the media was set up as a check and balance on the government under the Constitution. So this is probably the most fundamental role that a newspaper can play. Great, yes, and the, the First Amendment's protection of press and, and speech uh, both sort of play into that role and support that role. Um, and let's talk about the, the Sun-Times partnership with the, the BGA, which is the Better Government Association. A number of your stories on the site, if students and teachers go there and, and search up your names and take a look at your work, they'll see in the byline uh, a mention sometimes of a partnership with the BGA. Um, can, can one of you uh, maybe explain just briefly what that partnership is about and what, what the BGA is? Sure. I mean, Given the media landscape, uh, we're all trying to do more with less. Um, advertising revenue is down. Uh, we're all trying to find kind of this magic solution to uh, make the industry prosper again like it did. And part of that is uh, the, the Better Government Association is a decades-old organization that has been keeping an eye on government. It has kind of a journalism branch. It also has kind of a... a uh, good government uh, advocacy branch that tries to impact public policy. But um, our, our relationship with them is on the journalism side, obviously, and uh, they do uh, not-for-profit fundraising. Uh, another group uh, kind of nationally that's that's gotten a foothold is ProPublica. Um, the Better Government Association is kind of like a local ProPublica. Pro and actually some of our colleagues, former colleagues at the Sun-Times now work there, so it's a it's a natural fit for us. Um, they can do uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, which we're going to talk about more later on. Uh, we work in concert with them trying to gather data. Uh, once data comes in, I know hopefully some of your students have seen the movie Spotlight, um, the scene where they're inputting into a spreadsheet. Um, that's a lot of what happens uh, in this room. 
and it's a lot of what we do with the BGA is creating spreadsheets, uh, creating data, and they have the resources to do that, and it's, it's very helpful to us to have them uh, as a partner on a lot of these stories. Right. right. And you, it's a partnership that has existed for decades. You know, uh, in the early 70s, sometimes in the BGA actually bought a bar and ran a bar for a month uh, in which um, city building inspectors would come by and, and seek uh, bribes to overlook building code violations, fire code violations. So it's a partnership that does have uh, a long history to it. So open to business as a basis to to do a story and to do an investigation firsthand. Uh, yeah, it was a very controversial thing, but yeah, right. right. Got the job done though. Right. <laughs> a lot of people got in trouble. So in, when when you both uh, introduced yourselves, you you mentioned the freedom that you have and how that attracts you to to investigative work, and that and Tim mentioned no one gives you your stories, no one assigns you your stories per se. Uh, the way you might as a general assignment reporter or working on another desk in the newsroom uh, where an editor might say, here's a story I want you to go cover. Um, can you maybe, for students who aren't aware, sort of help explain how an investigative unit works and where it fits in the newsroom and why, why that's important? Uh, you know, we're, we're part of, uh, in our room, there's four people in here. Um, we all kind of work together. Uh, we are kind of the uh, longer-term guys, although we, you know, we kind of operate. We're investigative reporters, but we, I think, put a certain degree of pressure on ourselves to produce. Um, we we have at least one thing a week in the paper, um, if not two or three. Um, we always kind of Tim describes it as, uh, you know, we've got those four burners on the stove. Um, things are always in various stages of cooking, and sometimes things need to cook a little longer, so you're doing a faster uh, story and trying to get that out. So we're, we're not day-to-day -day people, although we do, once we launch a story, any follow-up, stories can become kind of their own beats, just as right. Grant Spielman covers City Hall. Um, the story we'll talk about later on with the David Koshman case has become Tim and I's beat, and there are daily stories that we have to do off that beat. So kind right. of how we operate. And the stories you tend to cover are... are uh, sometimes enormously complex and, as you mentioned, take a, a long time uh, uh, to report or to even be ready to, to publish the initial report and to conclude the investigation. Uh, right, and, and we always try to get, I think, a key part of what we do is we try to get results. And it's not always getting somebody indicted or sending them to prison, but it's also trying to impact uh, public policy, that milk money story, that BGA story, that raised awareness about this family that was landing all kinds of contracts from the milk, school milk contract to electrical contracts. And they have, one of their businesses was uh, had its uh, minority women-owned certification uh, rescinded based on the awareness we raised about what was going on there. So we're, when we go into a story, we're, we're not going in with saying, oh, we want X result, but we're aware that if we're going in, that that there that there are probably going to be more stories to do if we do our jobs uh, the way we've done them in the past. So, right. Uh, and in this milk money story, you you found a discrepancy in pricing between CPS and other districts that this milk delivery company uh, services, uh, and what seems like a relatively small amount, like a, a penny difference per unit per carton of milk adds up to, to huge amounts of money, I think $700,000 in this case, correct? And that's, that's public money and obviously really important. And I think that is a perfect example of playing the watchdog role on behalf of the public. Most members of the public would have no way of, of knowing how much CPS is paying for milk compared to other townships and suburbs and clients. Uh, and surfacing that obviously is very relevant to taxpayers who are funding the schools, and that's where the money is in part going. So. Uh, a perfect example there. Um, so let's pivot into You mentioned the David Koshman series, and this is something that really became your beat, uh, and the Sun-Times has dedicated an entire section of the site. I'm going to show the, the, the site, and uh, maybe uh, one or both of you could just um, just briefly explain what this story is about uh, and uh, how it came about and, and, and what it turned into, and I'll just sort of click through some of the visuals here as you, as you narrate. If that's okay. 
um, about uh, in 2004, this young man who had turned 21 went out with his friends to uh, a very popular part of Chicago where people go to uh, bars, and he got into an argument, and someone punched him in the face. He fell back and hit his head, and he died a couple of weeks later. Uh, the person who punched him ran away and was never charged. Um, at the time, it had come out that uh, so one of the people who had some involvement in that incident was uh, a nephew of Mayor Daley. Um, there was a lineup held. Uh, no charges were filed, and the case disappeared. And um, I think shortly before Mayor Daley left office in 2011, yes. Chris and I decided that we were looking to see if there were any stories that needed to be done before he left office. So we asked to see the file on this case. And um, yeah, we asked to see the file on the case, and we were told uh, the case was still under investigation, which was very surprising to us, given that the police superintendent, Mayor Daly's police superintendent in 2004 at the time indicated in all likelihood, it was closed. Um, from that point on, in, in 2011, it's really been you know nearly 200, maybe more than 200 stories later. Uh, the police reinvestigated, uh, closed the case, claiming that Mayor Daley's nephew acted in self-defense. We saw things in the police report that didn't square with um, statements that. Uh, David Koshman's friends had made to us about things that had happened that night. We we didn't get all the records we had asked for. We had discovered uh, that files were lost and had gone missing. And all the questions we had raised, uh, we were able to finally obtain the lineup pictures, which showed how the mayor's nephew, who's a former college football player, kind of a hulking guy at about 6'3", uh, 220 pounds, looked small in the lineup. Uh, he did not look small on the street at all that night. Uh, it all led to the appointment of a special prosecutor, and uh, eventually uh, in January of 2014, nearly 10 years after David Koshman was punched, uh, Mayor Daley's uh, nephew, Richard J. Vanecco, pleaded guilty to the crime. Uh, that's that's a, a big part of the story, but the part of the story that's still... I think vexes uh, Tim and I and, and keeps us motivated to do the story is that while Vanecco was held accountable, the people in the system that twice investigated this case and didn't charge him really haven't been held accountable. There have been some firings uh, that just took place uh, in the past few months of cops who reinvestigated the case in 2011, but as far as uh, criminal charges against uh, those other folks, uh, that hasn't happened. Um, so that's kind of Koshman 101, uh, Peter. I'm sure you have other questions, so we'll kind of let you uh, direct us from here. Sure. Um, thank you for that that uh, that rundown. I know it's a it's a, a huge story, very complex, and as you said, some 200 stories or reports uh, published about this this one story. Is that correct? Just about, yeah. Yeah, so they're all here in the special section of the site. It, I noticed, you know, at the bottom, you have a section where you have a searchable database of documents, uh, and I would assume that this, this database is full of documents that, that you and Tim gathered in your reporting, right? And, and I wondered if, if uh, one of you could talk about the role that documents play in investigative reporting particularly. Uh, all, all journalists work with documents and, and seek documents. Um, and then maybe uh, maybe talk about how you um, acquired these documents and why you shared them this way on the on the site um, in raw form. Um, most of the documents there are police reports um, on this case. Uh, ma many of them uh, that were created after we began asking to see the files. So there are police reports prompted by our um, reporting. There's also court documents and um, legal filings from the 
from the criminal case that was brought against the mayor's nephew. Um, all of the police reports were obtained under the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. Um, they mostly came in some sort of redacted form, and it was uh, it was a redacted police report that we obtained in 2011 uh, that prompted us to pursue the story because the police report had redacted, the police had basically redacted the entire report saying that we couldn't read it because it was under investigation. So as a result, um, we we basically had to reconduct our own police investigation of the crime ourselves. So um, by the time we finished our investigation and began publishing stories, the, the police department suddenly closed their case um, and then slowly began releasing documents to us, in which case the documents, their investigation and our investigation had different results. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the documents, it seemed like with every batch of documents they released to us um, under the Freedom of Information Act, it only raised more questions in our minds. Um, and, and Tim was the lead uh, FOIA uh, agent here. I mean, we, he, he, Tim's great about keeping track of everything, and uh, I've, I've, I've got to get better and <laughs> all that stuff. I, I, I tend to do it electronically using my Gmail and give every Freedom of Information Act request the same uh, subject line and track them that way. Tim does it the old-fashioned way on his paper calendar, but on a given week, we probably, each of us files probably at least four, yeah, four to five open records requests a week, and you have to keep track of them, and uh, it's uh, they're, and they're all on different stories, so it's, right. it's part of what we do. It's, it's the core of what we do is file FOIAs. So just to uh, highlight a couple of things here, um, Tim used the word redacted. I want to make sure students watching know what a redacted police report or document might look like. So something that's been redacted has been um, uh, blacked out. Uh, as you can see on my screen here, I'm sharing a, a police report or a supplemental report uh, with the date of birth of Koshman's date of birth and his address uh, as well as uh, Vaneko's uh, date of birth and address. This is not probably the, the level of redaction you saw in the initial reports, where I think Tim said most of the whole, most of the entire report was redacted and unavailable. But I wanted to make sure students understood that uh, those initial reports were coming back mostly blacked out uh, and really not giving you the information you sought when you filed the FOIA. Uh, the other thing I want to make sure students understand is what, what a Freedom of Information Act request is and and why um, you need it. Why it's such a vital tool. Uh, uh, for journalists. So I don't know if you had, had any comments about re redacting and, and the amount of information that was redacted. I just wanted to make sure students understood that. My real question here is about FOIAs. W what is a FOIA and, and why do you need it? Why can't you just uh, go down to City Hall or to the, to the department that you need the police department and say, I'd like a copy of this, please, and they hand it to you? Um, because it doesn't work that way and it really never has. Um, before the Freedom of Information Acts became law in states around the country and even with the federal government. Um, it was it was hit or miss as to whether someone would ever give you a document or whether a document existed or whatnot. So over the years, the law has evolved and changed, and now governments uh, pretty much won't release anything unless you actually do file a request for it. Um, I think part of that is so that they can uh, have some uh, written uh, requests so they can explain, this is why I gave that document to someone, because they asked me for it, and under the law, I have to do it. So it kind of is a, in some reforms, it's a, in, in some respects, it's a protection. In other cases, it's a, a delaying tactic, a, a, a tactic to... Uh, 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 stall the release of information until they can figure out maybe what you want or why you want it or what you can do with it. Um, and sometimes we ask for things that are uh, very voluminous and it does take a while to get them. So, you know, it's not it's not walking up to a counter and saying, give me this, give me that, because it just doesn't happen in, 
it never has. Right, and and uh, the the rationale, you know, for the law is that these documents are being generated by public officials and public offices funded by public tax dollars, and that the public has a right to access uh, some of those documents. Obviously, documents with sensitive information, personal information, things that relate to national security at the federal level uh, won't be released or would be redacted. Uh, and obviously, some of the information that you sought here from the police department actually wound up damaging the police department uh, in, in a variety of ways. It's public image, some of the officers and uh, administrators uh, at the police department, but under the law they were they were uh, forced to release the documents that, that you sought. Um, not always a straightforward process though, correct? Uh, they can they can decline a request and you can file an appeal and they can drag out for, for months uh, frequently. Is that Right in Illinois, your your options are if they if they reject you, you can appeal to uh, uh, the Illinois Attorney General's office, uh, Office of Public Access Counselor. Uh, that can take uh, you know months to resolve one of those cases. Uh, you also have the option of going to circuit court, and if you win in circuit court, then the uh, the public body needs to cover your legal fees. Um, there's, Tim and I try to operate. I think our our option is we, we try to avoid both of those things. We will revise requests, narrow requests, uh, file new requests, go about things in a different way to keep you know kind of peeling back the onion until we until we get what we want. That that said, we do end up uh, sometimes with the public access counselor and and or going to uh, attorneys at the Sun Times trying to kind of pry this stuff. Uh, loose. Right now we're in kind of a, we've been going back and forth with the BGA as a partner here and trying to pry open uh, some of the grand jury material that was involved in the uh, in the indictment of Richard J. Vanecco and, and interviews and things of, of cops and uh, prosecutors involved in the Koshman case. So it, it's not an exact science. It's not a one-size-fits-all policy and We've been doing it a long time, so we kind of know what to ask for and how to go about asking it. It's not something that, as a student, I think you can go about doing without having done it for some time and having some exposure to news. Right. But that said, there's nothing to stop citizens from filing FOIAs as well, right? It's not it's not uh, just a tool that journalists can use. You don't have to have any sort of credentials to file a FOIA. Uh, any citizen, any taxpayer can can file a FOIA. Um, for right. a specific piece of information. And in Illinois, I mean, there was a 2011 rewrite of the open records law that really raised a lot of government's awareness. I mean, things like public payrolls, overtime, uh, you know, basic contracts. If you can be as specific as possible for what you're looking for in a in a FOIA request, um, and it's 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 general simple information, you should get it, and you should get it relatively quickly. Oftentimes, those citizens ask for things that that uh, don't exist or aren't right. actually records or um, aren't public, um, and they may ask for them in ways that uh, they, they don't understand the system, uh, and, and that's understandable. But but um, I think the citizen requests are are uh, a much uh, more tricky um, uh, procedure for governments to handle. Right. They're in unfamiliarity with what they're asking for. Right. But it takes. I mean, I, I would imagine took took both of you years to become familiar with uh, different city government structures, state government institutions, and and different offices and how they work and what records they do and don't keep and and how you what you could ask for in what ways. Um, so yeah, that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, so all of that, filing of FOIAs and collecting documents and entering them into spreadsheets and analyzing them and looking for discrepancies and, and writing and editing and publishing 200 stories is a lot of resources uh, for the Sun-Times uh, and both of you uh, to put toward this one case. Why do you think um, this, this case got that much attention uh, by both of you and, and the Sun-Times? Why devote that kind of uh, those kind of resources too. It's a very resource-intensive uh, endeavor. Well, for starters, it was the right thing to do. Um, 
we had a uh, we had a a, uh, a roughly innocent person who lost his life on the streets of the city, and no one seemed to care how or why. Um, and there were uh, there was a strong belief that he had been killed by a member of the family that has run the city for 50 years, and that as a result, um, they blamed the victim for his own death. Um, so you had an egregious wrong here. Um, you had uh, a situation that could happen to anybody. Um, it, it, it's it's um, uh, it's sort of a freak accident that occurred, but nevertheless, it is considered a murder. And um, and you, you then had a political cover up. You had a police cover up. Um, you know, the, the cover-up, the, the, the question has always been, was the cover-up to protect the nephew or to protect the mayor? So you, you had um, a significant story that, that, that actually took us into so many different parts of, of the city and the state and how things work here. We, uh, this case went to the um, police department. It went to the uh, state. To the prosecutor's office, it went to the court system. It, it took us into so many different places, and it was um, an exercise of it, it, it allowed us to show the public so much on how government works—not just the police department, but the politics and and how deaths are investigated and, and how people are prosecuted and how people are charged and and uh, the, the mother going to court and asking for a special prosecutor to, to have someone with some uh, perceived independence to review the case and, and determine whether or not there should be charges. Um, it, it's just been a fascinating uh, civics lesson for us and for, I think, for the city. Yeah, I mean, that, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to think that this murder you know, and, and we're not trying to toot our, you know, this is what we do. We're paid to do this. But I, I don't think, you know, Tim got interested in this story because he worked on a story about the Daly family back in 2008. And this this kind of, the, the story of David Koshman resonated with him because he knocked on Nancy Koshman's door and said he wanted to talk to her about uh, about about the case. And this is, Nancy Koshman is a, is a big motivator. I mean, she's a real human being, and and her humanity, I think, motivated us throughout this. And uh, when when Nancy first answered the door, and Tim uh, was that on the other uh, other end of it, um, actually, it was a phone call. You weren't there, but uh, she said the only thing that that she told him is that the person who did it ran away, and that stuck in Tim's craw all those years, and still until we talked about trying to get the files so it's a uh, it's been an emotional case and an emotional ride and and we've been criticized uh, throughout it um, the the outgoing state's attorney the now outgoing state's attorney who lost her re-election bid um, was very extremely publicly critical of us um, others were critical of us I think we had a lot of doubters within our own newsroom but uh, uh, the truth prevailed here and and that's uh, that's pretty gratifying. That's great. Um, uh, I, yeah, I'm struck by by um, aspects of both of your answer there, Tim. Tim calling it a a, uh, a civics lesson uh, for both of you and and for the city and hopefully for the, your readership and the citizens uh, of Chicago. Uh, and Chris, in, in in your answer there, and in and in um, preparation here, you said the story took you places you never expected to go, and it really has unfolded, and and you just follow the story uh, as it as it unfolded. Um, obviously, I think the First Amendment protections of speech and press were really vital here to both of your uh, ability to to follow this story. There's some very powerful interests in the city who did not want this story to come out, um, and uh, um, you know the ability to to ask for documents to publish stories about powerful people 
uh, I think is only you know possible because of the the, the First Amendment. Um, nonetheless, I think there were probably some real barriers. Is there a an anecdote you can think of, uh, either of you, where there was a time when someone really tried hard to silence you, to kill this story, to divert you? I'm sure it happened many times. Is there a, a time or two that really stands out? Actually, that never happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not within our own, not within our okay. own shop, but I mean, no, no. I mean, a, a source or the police department, somebody trying to intimidate you, but you both or the paper, not didn't happen. Not if if it happened, we're unaware of it. Okay. Um, and I don't really think that it, you know, might there have been people in town who wished we would go away? Yeah, I'm sure there were. We've been writing this story for five years now. Um, and many people thought we were um, overzealous and that we were um, uh, blinded by our quest for the truth, which perhaps we were, um, and I'm sure actually we were, but we had to do all those stories to get to the truth because if we had just written one story and gone away, well, none of this would have happened. So it was it was the constant pressure that we applied. Um, you're asking if pressure was applied back, not, not in the way that you suggested, uh, not any way that we've seen. Um, you know, we, we, we got a lot of criticism against us, but no one ever uh, asked us to not print a story. Uh, no one ever threatened us if we did print a story. Um, we made a lot of people very angry. I mean, one of the elements of this story is that we, we drove around and went to people's homes and the story was that important. I mean, police officers typically do not like getting visits at home, and uh, we didn't get a lot of cooperation from them during those visits to their homes, but, you know, it, it was something felt, we felt we had to do because we were leveling some pretty serious allegations here, and part of being a watchdog is we have very uncomfortable conversations with the people we write about every day, and... Uh, we, you know, people know who we are, and when we call, there's there's sometimes a recoiling preliminarily of the questions that we ask, but, you know, that's part of doing this, is this is not, we're not writing about the dog show, you know, we're, we're, we're not making a lot of friends doing what we do, but it's, it's, and we have to deal with a lot of very uncomfortable situations because of that, so this story has been really uh, emblematic of that. And in, and in terms, terms of, of outcomes, outcomes uh, you mentioned that Vineko, uh the the, the uh, mayor's nephew, who actually was eventually determined to be the to be the guy who threw uh, the fatal punch that night when the two groups sort of had words, um, was indicted. Um, beyond that, what were what were some of the other uh, outcomes, uh, just briefly, and then I want to move on to another s story that that uh, that you both worked on more recently here. But outcomes from this Koshman series, uh, aside from the the uh, indictment. Well, there were um, six police officers disciplined. Um, three of them resigned um, rather than face termination. Um, one was terminated. Um, one is currently fighting a suspension right now. Um, it was hundred. I mean, the special prosecutor who worked on the case produced a 162-page report uh, that was, you know, critical of the way the department handled the case. Pointed out several of the failures. I mean, it's interesting now, given the climate in Chicago with police corruption um, that, that erupted because of the Laquan McDonald shooting of a black teenager was shot 16 times by a white cop. Uh, you know, now there's all kinds of stories about how the police discipline system uh, has failed in the city, how cops get away with, uh, get away with things. Um, we were, David took us into this, David Koshman took us into this world. I mean, some of the guys who worked on this case, one of them, uh, a high-ranking lieutenant who uh, retired rather than be fired, uh, we found out he was arrested in 2004 in Michigan on a sexual uh, abuse charge. 
and ended up uh, getting a 30-day suspension for that. I don't know, you know, that type of story now in this environment would probably be a lot more explosive. But when we were doing caution stories, the 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 attitudes regarding police corruption, it just, we were we were kind of the, uh, I don't know, canaries in the coal mine, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. And then now the story has kind of exploded. So it's just, it's that's how news works. There are timings and cycles and, you know, uh, before there was Laquan McDonald, there was David Koshman. Now, granted, the police didn't kill David Koshman, but a politically connected member of, of, of the city's first family did. So right. there are similarities there. Um, and that, that same uh, uh, machinery of, of police cover-up, not all police, but some police in, in the department that work together to... Uh, alter facts or to to make things difficult to investigate. Um, so the the similarity there as well, because there were those dynamics in the Laquan McDonald case, right, with with disabling of body cams and sure. state, statements that didn't match up and and things like that. Uh, the so-called code of silence, which you both are still writing about, uh, obviously. Um, so I want to pivot here, if we can, to another story, and I'm going to share share this uh, that you both did. Um, this sort of resembles the the Madigan uh, Rauner story in that uh, um, Edward Burke, who's a, a powerful uh, alderman, um, for national viewers who aren't sure what an alderman is, I'll, I'll let I'll let one of you sort of explain uh, what what an alderman is in Chicago. Um, but Burke is uh, also a lawyer, has a law firm, and that firm handles uh, property tax reduction cases. And one of his clients uh, was Donald Trump for Trump Tower uh, here uh, in Chicago. So maybe one of you can talk about how you got the idea for the story, how this story came about, uh, and, and quickly what it's about. Um, well, an alderman in Chicago was a member of the city council. There are 50 aldermen. And um, Ed Burke is, without question, the most powerful of those 50 aldermen. So he's been an alderman since 1969. So um, he's actually been in office longer than I think anybody else in the city. Um, When Trump came to Chicago to build this tower, um, he... uh, hired a bunch of local firms who are all politically connected and then of course he hired a firm to handle his tax appeals and in Chicago most of those firms are run by politicians uh, such as Ed Burke. Um, We have done stories on Ed Burke and his clients over the years. Um, It's a perennial type story in that this is how he makes his living uh, when he's not serving in the city council, and so he has all sorts of, uh, of big-name clients. Uh, he saves them money. They pay him money. Um, we had never done Trump uh, as a client since he was running for office. Uh, since Trump is running for president, we decided that we should do this story um, and try to figure out how much money Ed Burke has saved Donald Trump since Trump uh, built that tower about 10 years ago. So basically an example of someone using political connections uh, in uh, their their private interest, in this case Burke, as a city official, uh, perhaps leveraging that political power uh, privately through his law firm to assist uh, Donald Trump reduce his taxes by by uh, an astonishing amount of money, actually, um, which is just revenue lost to the city. Um, well, go ahead. In many cases, it's not revenue lost to the city because if one person gets a tax break, then the other person pays more. So the city still gets the amount of money in most cases that it wanted or needed. Got it. It's just a question of... it. it, it, it it's the proportionality of it. It changes the share that someone has to pay. And and in your example there of your, your summation, um, it's not just Burke using his political influence. 
Trump is using Burke's political influence as well. Right. I mean, that's people hire a, a firm of Ed Burke or Mike Madigan. It's they want their influence, so they're both trading on their, in, that influence. Right, and in the in the whole system, I mean, and that's one thing that the I think the story kind of pointed out the. The, the, the property tax system, and as is the case with a lot of things you write about, it's extremely arcane. And, uh, you know, you have a case here, though, where you have the most powerful Democratic alderman in Chicago who uh, appeals the taxes to, appeals the assessment to the Democratic Cook County assessor, who uh, then Burke appeals them further to the Cook County Board of Review, which includes Democrats. And then he has the option, even after that, if he doesn't like the savings, he can take it to, he can appeal further to Cook County Circuit Court, where many of the judges are Democrats, and he slated them to be judges, and or take it to the State Property Tax Appeal Board, um, which is obviously under control of the Illinois legislature. So you have an extremely political system here by which this empirical analysis is being judged. So it's just an interesting process. and. Obviously, the cherry on the Sunday for us with this one is you've got Trump running as a Republican, so right. he is using the whole Democratic apparatus in Chicago to uh, to reduce the reduces tax payments on his real estate. Um, um, I, I, I assume I that, that uh, documents, documents played a role here as well. Do, do you want to just mention quickly how you? what your process was here in, in reporting this story and how you chased that down? This was a very complicated story because of the nature of the property. Trump Tower was built on the former headquarters of the Sun-Times. So when the Sun-Times owned the building, there were two properties that made up that building, so there would be two tax bills. and during the course of construction of this tower, it, the two tax bills became one tax bill and eventually became 1,500 tax bills. So we obtained, I don't even know how many records to try to figure out all the savings that were done over the years and try to figure out uh, what Trump owned and what he didn't own and when he owned it and when he sold it because a great deal of the tower condominiums which are been sold to individual owners so he no longer is responsible for their taxes um, but it, it just became a, a very document intensive story because there were so many pieces of property involved in this tower and even after we had the raw data we had to go crunching it with the you know uh, city of Chicago's tax rate for where Trump Tower is located then you have to do, you know, you have to do some calculations and some math with, uh, with something called the multiplier, and it just can become. A, there's also differences in how commercial and residential property are valued. Um, Tim is uh, probably knows. I, I think sometimes Tim knows more about uh, property taxes than many of the elected officials who are charged with making these decisions, and he's been a uh, a good teacher uh, to me on that stuff. So these are, th but this is a classic example of a story where you need to work together because if you're left doing the math problem yourself, you're you're always kind of you can double check it a million times. But this is where we we need each other to to do the math, and then sometimes we would do the math individually and then check did you get the same answer I did, and it, it's an example of why why uh, watchdogs uh, tend to work in uh, packs. And uh, what was the response to the story like, or the outcomes to, to this particular story uh, <laughs> when it ran? Was there was there a response? Was anybody surprised? Did you get comments, uh, emails? Well, the Cook County assessor wasn't too happy, and we were on TV with his spokesman uh, going back and forth about whether the system is as fair as uh, the public officials uh, say it is. Um, uh, you know, some journalists have picked up on it. There's actually a story online on the Daily Beast right now uh, that makes uh, references our story. So we'll see. You know, was it a was it a was it a viral story? No, but uh, right. The, the story like this, we we found just a lot of the stories we did on Obama back when he was running the first time. Those stories gradually they have a long shelf life. 
um, on the internet, and people tend to pick them up at, at odd times. So we'll see what happens with this one. Understood. So uh, I asked you both um, about why you think um, the Chicago Sun-Times devoted um, such significant resources, especially to David Koshman, but investigative reporting in general is very resource intensive. Um, but I didn't ask you both why you do this kind of work. I mean, Chris, you told the story of knocking on doors of, uh, of police officers who are not happy that you're there, uh, people who are angry with you uh, on a regular basis, um, dealing with uh, difficult um, subjects, um, very complicated stories, documents, um, spreadsheets, complicated math. Um, why do you do? Uh, why do you both do this? Why do you? Why do you play this role, uh, given those those dynamics? I, I think you know Tim. Tim told me very early on when we were starting to partner on more stuff that the you know the work we do is important. It matters, and uh, you know we we maybe approach um, our stories and our subjects a little differently than others do. Um, you know, that Rauner Madigan story you cited, you know, that's kind of an example, I think, of our thinking on things. Everybody's, everybody in town is writing about how badly these two guys are at odds, and, and we see it a little differently. We see how, you know, they're both wealthy guys who can, who have shared interests and aren't really affected by a lot of the conundrums they're creating in terms of, you know, failure to fund vital social services for people. Um, I think that's why we do it. I do it personally because I enjoy I enjoy the people that I work with. I enjoy working with Tim. I enjoy working with our editor Paul Saltzman. Um, I enjoy the the dynamic we have in this room and and the freedom to be able to um, kind of set the agenda, uh, set the news agenda rather than follow it. It's it's that said, it can be really maddening um, at times. I think the bottom line is we live here. This is this is our home. Uh, we're both from here, so um, we understand how the city works. We understand what's what does work, what doesn't work, and what works but shouldn't work. Um, we understand the way things work, and, and we can understand how th that is manipulated or that is uh, done to people's advantages. And I, I think that we do this because we're trying to make the city a better place. I think that's the end result of what it is that we try to do. Um, whether we succeed or not, we don't really know. But um, we're just trying to shed light on the things that happen here and how they happen and why. And you mentioned uh, your editor, Paul Saltzman, I, I should mention, he is featured in a lesson that, that my organization, the News Literacy Project, uh, did with him uh, uh, about uh, news judgment uh, on our new platform, uh, the, which is called Checkology. You can find it at, at checkology.org. Paul's featured there. We also have a lesson uh, taught by, uh, by James Grimaldi. Uh, now at the at the Wall Street Journal, formerly the Washington Post, about investigative, iconic investigative cases. So teachers, students, if you're interested in learning more, um, you can head to checkology.org and find those there. Um, another question um, for Chris and Tim here. Uh, what are some areas in today's political landscape that you think the public, especially young people who are joining us today, should watch closely, um, uh, either for the impact on their lives or to monitor for corruption, maybe something that's that you feel is underappreciated by by citizens. Well, I think the it's it's kind of uh, interesting. My answer is education. I think education reporting is is going to be kind of a a big wave of the future. There's so much going on between Tim and I have done stories about the Chicago Teachers Union and how much money it has and the great financial shape it's in. Um, we had a colleague in this room, uh, Dan Helopoulos, uh, and Tim worked with him early on on a bunch of stories about a politically connected charter school network uh, in which money was just siphoned, tax dollars were siphoned away from the public, um, spent on meals, all kinds of entertainment, crazy stuff, uh, contracts that went to relatives of the board members. Of the, you know, I, I think education reporting is such, I think for years, definitely in Chicago and, and I think potentially nationally, we've 
we've all been focused so much on test scores and programs and the results and uh, and and what we've seen in Chicago with the uh, indictment of the school CEO is follow the money and uh, you know that's it's cliche to say that but when it comes to education there's a lot of money out there and a lot of contracts and I think people need to be paying attention to that um, like we've paid attention to other branches of government. Education shouldn't get a pass anymore because it's ostensibly touchy-feely warm and about, about the children. It's, it's as much about the money and the contracts as it is about the children. I think many, many students probably suffer for that, that money uh, headed elsewhere and not, not toward their education. And obviously a lot of students watching li live that uh, in their school systems, whether it's here in Chicago where school funding is a is a, a very pressing issue, uh, or elsewhere. Um, Tim, your response here: um, issues, uh, areas in today's political landscape. You think that maybe citizens uh, and especially young people should should be paying attention to? Um, well, I would imagine your uh, viewers would be, uh, I would argue, higher ed, um, which is just. Uh, an insatiable beast that keeps growing in terms of costs and, and the amount of money that is needed to send somebody to college, but I, I wouldn't limit anything. Um, you know, there's just so many stories that need to be told anywhere, um, whether it is police corruption or whether it is, you know, government spending on defense or education whatever, environmental issues. Uh, there's right. issues that are coming out now, lead pipes, and, and um, there, there's more issues than there are people to write about them. Um, we try to find areas that nobody's in. Uh, try to find your own fishing hole where you can find some fish, but there's plenty of fishing holes out there. We talked earlier about the limitations that some citizens have in terms of understanding how city agencies work, some of the things that you do that take experience, that take insight, that take full-time resources for you to devote, you know, eight, ten hours or sometimes more a day to, to pursuing information. What are your tips for students and, and other citizens who want to play a watchdog role of a, of a kind, right? Because citizens can, can also play a role here. Um, any, any parting tips here as we wrap up, uh, advice you have for, for students watching, um, tools they can use, ways to, to settle on an issue, ways to find a fishing hole, Tim, that, that you mentioned? My uh, advice to everyone is always to use your eyes. Uh, a lot of the things that we do are based on observations, things we see, things we see that aren't right. Um, I saw a truck parked at my house for years, and I finally decided to inquire about a truck. Um, it, it, it's a story that probably wouldn't have really happened any other way. Um, when you see things, if you, you see, you know, a road being paved, you can ask, you know, who's doing it, uh, you know, how often has this road been paved? Didn't we just do this last year? People have to think and see. Um, and you can do that in your own backyard. Why hasn't my road been paved in several years would be the flip, flip side of that. More common here, I think, in Chicago. Chris? Yeah, I think Tim's right. I mean, I think, you know, uh, curiosity is what, what drives us. And if you have a curious mind and you're willing to, you know, I think especially with media consolidation, people tend to, we're all kind of looking to aggregate each other. And as a result, the news is largely becoming the, to a certain degree, it's the same story over and over again. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to think about it differently. And, you know, Tim Tim had a, uh, I remember he was talking, we were talking to some Chinese journalists and, Tim's like, well, I don't look at the I don't look at the flat planter boxes in Chicago and think about how beautiful they are. I look at the planter boxes and think about who planted those flowers, mm -hmm. who's watering those flowers, and who's caring for those flowers. And one eventually, one time we proved that I think a politically connected group was watering those flowers with ties to Patty Bogoyevich and Mayor Daley. So it's it's you know it's just a matter of maybe you don't want to view the world 
too cynically, but you uh, you want to uh, you want to look at it uh, critically, and uh, I think that's curiosity is the way you do that. Great. Um, so I, I wanted to, to make sure to mention we didn't really have any any questions from the audience uh, yet, but we are wrapping up here. So this is sort of last call on audience questions before we let Chris and Tim go back to their very busy uh, work there in the newsroom, um, and we close out here. We are at the top of the hour. Um, so it looks like uh, no questions, but uh, perhaps there will be some, some conversation, hopefully, among the audience and follow-up uh, and among... Uh, folks who, who watch the archive. So I want to take uh, a, a moment here to thank uh, both uh, Chris and Tim uh, for taking uh, more than an hour now out of their evening and, and for, for uh, putting your thoughts together uh, in preparation for this. Uh, we know how busy you are and, and really appreciate you joining us here um, tonight. Um, this wraps up the second webinar of this May 2016 series on building news literacy, but please feel free to keep the energy and conversation going on Twitter um, using the hashtags that I mentioned at the top, uh, both hashtag connected learning um, and to the numeral two next prez with a Z. Um, and uh, uh, we are all on Twitter as well. Um, and there will be a, a full video recording of this webinar available immediately uh, following on connectedlearning.tv um, with other curated content on the way. If you found this conversation helpful or interesting uh, or useful, please um, share the link uh, to the video archive with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator, um, please visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for their email newsletter. Um, thanks again, Chris. Thanks again, Tim, National Writing Project, uh, for, uh, for this evening for a great conversation. Um, and uh, good night. Thank you both.